Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, February 14th, 2021, and this is show number 823. This week on Chit Chat Across the Pond, the tables are turned and you're actually going to hear me being interviewed. I was asked to be on the Magic Mac show, which is on the American Council of the Blind streaming radio channel. Host Tyson Ernst, Katie Frederick, and Jason Kassunway asked me on so they could learn about how I got interested in accessibility and what it's helped me do. During the latter part of the show, they do something absolutely terrifying. They allow live audience listeners to call in and ask questions. You'll notice I have never done that. I've always been afraid of it, but Debbie Hazelton, Managing Director for ACB Radio, does a great job of moderating the callers. You can learn more about ACB Radio at acbradio.org and the American Council of the Blind at acb.org. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Go check it out in your podcatcher of choice. It's episode number 671 of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light and in your Chit Chat Across the Pond feed as well. This week, I had the great pleasure of being a guest on Clockwise again with host Dan Morin and Micah Sargent. This episode was especially enjoyable because I got to be on with Christopher Finn, who might just be my new favorite person on the internet. He was absolutely hilarious, especially when it came to the question I asked about whether the other guests liked Apple Fitness Plus. It was absolutely hysterical. Anyway, you can find Clockwise in your podcatcher of choice and look for episode number 385 entitled Quib House, and I don't even remember why that is. Anyway, or you can follow the link in the show notes and in your podcatcher to find Clockwise episode 385. Whether it's because you have a small screen or because you're a menu bar app addict, you may have too many menu bar apps to fit on your menu bar. Then you need Bartender from MacBartender.com. If you haven't ever heard of it before, Bartender is an app that allows you to control what you see in your menu bar by creating essentially a second hidden menu bar. It's been a huge favorite in the Mac community for absolutely ages, and it's just getting a huge update for Big Sur. When I say for Big Sur, I mean that it only runs on Big Sur, not on Catalina or earlier. I was just fixing to make a plan to nuke and pave my production machine, and one of the reasons I wanted to do that was so I could go to Big Sur and have Bartender 4. I'm really that excited about this. I recently created a tutorial on Screencast Online about Bartender 4, and I used my backup Mac, which was already on Big Sur, and I really missed Bartender when I went back to Catalina on the production machine. If you want to learn how to use Bartender 4, of course, I highly recommend signing up for Screencast Online, but I did want to tell you about Bartender 4 here to get you excited about it. Bartender 4 is in public beta right now, which means it's free to download and use to give the developer feedback until it's officially released. Once it is released, it costs a grand total of $15. And if you have a previous version, you can get it on upgrade pricing for $7.50. I actually paid the full $15 because this is such a mission-critical app for me, and I hadn't paid the developer, Ben Surtees, in absolutely years, and I wanted to support such an awesome app. As I mentioned, the purpose of Bartender is to manage your menu bar items by hiding the ones you never want to see and putting the ones you sometimes need to see on a second menu bar. In Bartender 4, you have new ways to show the second bar and you get to control how this happens. Ben calls the second menu bar the Bartender bar, but I always think of it as a second menu bar. 
Assuming that you've put some items on a second menu bar using Bartender 4, you can click in the empty space of your menu bar now, and the second menu bar will appear. You don't have to be precise and click on the icon. Click again, and it goes away. It's so much easier now to activate that second menu bar. But maybe, you know, clicking is too much work for you. You can set Bartender to allow you to simply hover your mouse in the empty area to select and activate the second menu bar. If you try the hover method and you find that Bartender gets triggered through accidental movement up there too often for your taste, you can even add a specific time delay before activating it so it's not flipping to the second menu bar except when you hover with intention. Maybe having your primary menu bar disappear and be replaced by the second one is annoying, and you'd rather see both at the same time. In Preferences, there's a checkbox to use the bartender bar to show hidden items, and that means if you click on the bartender icon or in the empty space of your max menu bar, the second menu bar will show, but it's going to show up under where you clicked without removing your normally showing menu bar items. I think it makes it easier to get full situational awareness of your menu bar items. Because I load up so many apps on my Mac, I have a ton of menu bar items. As a result, it's not uncommon for me to scan methodically through them all, trying to find the one with which I want to interact. With half of them hidden by Bartender, I sometimes can't remember if I've purposely hidden the one I'm looking for, or I just can't find it, so I toggle back and forth trying to find the one I need. With Bartender 4, that problem is solved by the addition of Quick Search. In Bartender 3, you could do a search of your existing menu bar items, and you could define a hotkey to trigger it, but it's not as cool as it is in Bartender 4. In the older version, when you trigger the search, you get a tiny search box under the Bartender icon, and as you type, the menu bar icons start disappearing, leaving only the ones that match the search string left. It's still pretty cool in Bartender 3, and I do have to confess that I never noticed it was there in all the years I've been using Bartender. It proves the old adage that the best way to learn something is to teach it. In Bartender 4, a simple right-click or control-click on the Bartender menu bar icon lets you select Quick Search and you get a lovely floating window where you can start typing the characters for the menu bar items you seek. The search window shows the color icon for the apps on the left, the name of the app in the middle, and then on the right you see what the icon looks like when it's in the menu bar. This format can be especially useful if you've got an app that spawns more than one menu bar item. For example, SoundSource from Rogue Amoeba spawns icons for the general app, your input device, and your output device. And if you choose, it can even show icons for the apps you're controlling with SoundSource. In Bartender, I see the pretty green-blue icon for SoundSource, so that, that really triggers me because that's the real icon I'm used to, to looking for. And in my case, it shows it three times. And then the menu bar, the three menu bar icons that it spawns are over on the right, so I can select the specific item for which I was searching. Big Sur brought an odd change to the menu bar. It increased the spacing between menu bar items. The icons are so far apart that I've heard it speculated that Apple's preparing for a touchscreen macOS experience. They're that far apart. If you have a lot of menu bar items or just a small screen laptop, this will be problematic because we run out of room with even fewer menu bar items. Bartender 4 lets you change the spacing back to the Catalina spacing, and that's so much better. This is going to make a lot of people happy. If you want even more space, you can even choose no spacing to cram in as many menu bar items as possible. Bartender 4 has some more menu bar item spacing tricks up its sleeve. You can now add empty space to separate your menu bar items. That seems like an odd option right after complaining about too much space between items, but it can solve a real problem. Here's an example. 
Like many Mac users, I use iStat menus to track my system. I watch processor load, network traffic, and RAM usage. This gives me a lot of menu bar items, and it'd be nice to be able to set them apart from my other menu bar items to make them easier to identify at a quick glance. You know, just a smidge of separation could be useful. You can change the width of the spacer from very small to absurdly large. If you go to the maximum, the the menu bar items uh, to the left of the spacing go all the way over to the far left of the screen. You can also even type text for the spacer. Not only that, you can put in emoji as the spacer text. I put the goofy one with the tongue hanging out as my spacer. It adds zero value, but it makes me giggle every time I see it. Bart is going to love this feature. In previous versions of Bartender, to make menu bar items show, hide, or always hide, you had to go through a list of your existing menu bar items and for each one make the decision. It was kind of a tedious process because you couldn't see at a glance which ones were shown or hidden. In Bartender 4, it works much more like iStat menus. In the menu bar layout option and preferences, you get three bars, one for shown menu bar items, one for hidden, and one for always hidden and you simply drag and drop your menu bar items up and down between the three bars. It's ever so much better and more intuitive than it was in the previous version. You'll notice a fourth bar in this menu, and it's called Menu Bar Items Palette. Right now, the only thing you'll find in the palette is that spacer I talked about earlier, but Ben has plans for more cool things that will show up in this palette. Remember, this is a beta, so it's not yet feature complete. I had no trouble with anything. I mean, everything worked as I expected, so it's it's a pretty safe beta, but all the features aren't there that Ben's planning. Now, one feature that confused me at first, uh, but after studying it to make the video and a lot of conversation with Ben, I think I understand it. The feature is called Show for Updates. The idea is you can have the behavior of a menu bar icon, whether it's shown or hidden, be changed if there's a change to the utility behind the menu bar item. Ben includes three show for updates triggers as examples that will help explain the feature. One example is to show the Wi-Fi menu bar item only if you've lost or disabled Wi-Fi. That kind of makes sense. If everything is hunky-dory with Wi-Fi, why do you need to see the icon? The only time you really need to see it is when something's gone wrong. Another example is to only show the time machine icon when it's actually running a backup. Remember, even if it's hidden, you can always bring it up manually to run a backup by hovering or clicking on the menu bar to show your hidden items. The last example in this section is a trigger to show the battery symbol only when you're not connected to a power source. I'm not sure I'd choose this particular trigger because I like to see if my laptop is sufficiently charged before unplugging it. Whether you use any or all of these show for updates triggers is up to you but it's great that they're there so you can study how they work and learn how to create your own triggers. I should mention that Bartender 3 did have show for updates as an option by application, but you didn't have have control over what behavior would cause a menu bar item to appear. They simply appeared if anything about their status changed. Now with Bartender 4, you can create your own triggers based on on criteria you set. Ben does give a warning in the advanced section that there's a price to pay in energy usage if you use show to update or show for updates triggers. So it gives you some options to decrease the frequency of checking to save your battery. Bartender 3 allowed you to define hotkeys to trigger the behavior of your menu bar items, and Bartender 4 maintains the exact same feature. If it's too tedious to click in the menu bar to activate the second menu bar, you can assign a global hotkey to do it for you. 
Have you ever been on a small laptop where the menus of the current app are so wide that you can't see all of your supposedly visible menu bar items? I run into this all the time when I'm running at low resolution while recording videos for screencasts online. With a hotkey in Bartender, you can show the full width of the menu bar, which completely removes the menu from the current app and leaves only the Apple logo on the left. I'm not sure how and why Bartender is even allowed to do this, but it's really cool. My beloved Quick Search can also be triggered by a hotkey, and this is definitely going to be my favorite one. If you really hate to use the mouse, you can define a hotkey that allows you to navigate left and right with the arrow keys between your menu bar items. I'm wondering if this feature would make it easy to write a keyboard maestro macro to launch a menu bar app. Well, I'm pleased to say that Ben is working on making Bartender 4 fully ex accessible via voiceover, but I checked with a few of my voiceover friends and it's definitely not yet ready for the visually impaired user. I think Bartender 4 is a fantastic update to one of my most beloved Mac utilities. I think it's very cool that Ben has it out in public beta so anyone can play with it. I hope I've given you enough to be excited about Bartender 4, and if uh, you can now go check it out at macbartender.com. Give it a spin, give Ben some feedback, and see if it solves some problems for you like it does for me. This week's hero is Alan Nixon, as he's the newest patron of the Podfeed podcast. You know what he did? He took his hard-earned dollars over to podfeed.com slash Patreon, and he chose to support the work we do here by pledging a dollar amount that showed the value he gets from listening to the shows. Thank you so much, Alan, for your generous support. It means a lot to me. If you've been following me for years, then you already know that I'm a huge proponent of nuking and paving computers. By nuke and pave, I mean a clean install of the operating system, but the truly nuke version of clean. I try to do this every year or so, where or so can be up to maybe another year while I procrastinate because it's such a daunting task. Every single time I do it, I'm really glad I did, but every single time it is definitely difficult to convince myself that it's going to be worth the trouble. If you've heard me sing this song before, I hope you'll indulge me in talking about it yet again because I learn new things each time I do a new can pave. As always, we have to start with the problem to be solved. I hear a lot of people talk about how awesome it is that they use Migration Assistant when they get a new machine. They even brag about how seldom they start from scratch because Migration Assistant makes it so easy to carry everything forward for years and years and years. But I also hear the same people talk about their computer experience being weird. They talk about running out of disk space, and they talk about their computer being slow. They talk about how much time they spend chasing down strange and annoying bugs. You know, I experience weird behaviors too, and it seems to reach a fever pitch of annoying about a year after a new can pave. It's rarely a single big bad bug that pushes me over the edge. It's the million little paper cuts that get to me after a while. Lately, I've had truly inconsistent behavior on whether my Apple Watch will unlock my Mac. I'm lucky that I have a Touch ID Mac, but unlock with Apple Watch is actually faster for me when it decides to work. My fingers are very dry, so Touch ID takes two or three tries, and often I just give up. Even when Touch ID is working, the Apple Watch unlocks before I can get the Touch ID sensor to work with my finger. When it works, it's glorious, and then it just stops working. I really wanted Apple Watch Unlock to work in the operating system too, because when it's working, it can also unlock one password. It's truly delightful when it works, maddening when it doesn't. 
See, I, t- I did talk to Agile Bits, and they can't fix it if it fails because it's macOS refusing the approval from Apple Watch to one password. A few weeks ago, Bart mentioned that he doesn't use any scanning apps on his iPhone. He simply right-clicks in Finder or in Notes and whatever Apple services, and he chooses Import from iPhone or iPad, and he selects Scan Documents under his listed phone. This is a feature we got with Continuity a few OSs ago, but I'd actually forgotten about it. I gave it a try, and none of my iDevices were listed. Yes, they were on the same Wi-Fi network. Yes, I had Bluetooth on everywhere. And yes, I had Allow Handoff checked in System Preferences General. It simply doesn't work. And I couldn't find any answers on the Googles as to why. And remember a while ago, I told you about a cool feature when you take screenshots with Apple's built-in screenshot utility, where you can tap a button and annotate with the screenshot with your iPad with pencil? Yeah, that stopped working too. That's another part of continuity and handoff. Then search stopped working in mail. And contacts got real weird where I simply could not enter a new contact because it would save right when I was partway through entering the person's name. I mean, like I'm typing Bob and I get the B-O in and it saves and it's gone. Anyway, I started running busy contacts just so I could edit my contacts. I could go on and on with all the fiddly bits I dealt with day in and day out on my Mac, but I'm sure you're getting the picture. I had two choices. I could spend exhausting hours and hours trying to track down the root cause of all these fiddly bits, or I could burn it to the ground. I'm betting that burn it to the ground actually takes less time than fiddly bit tracking, but it's still hard to get your nerve up to do it. There's another reason to burn it to the ground, and that's speed. Truly starting from scratch is the least expensive way to speed up your machine. Now, before going down any path like this, you have to consider your backup strategy. I use Backblaze for continuous backups, and more importantly, I have a full carbon copy cloner bootable backup on an external SSD. That bootable backup is critical to the process. Don't even think about undertaking this until you have at least two backups. Remember that with one backup, as soon as you nuke your your Mac, you now have no backups at all because you only have one copy of your data. You don't get to call that external drive a backup anymore. That's the only one. All right, public service announcement over. Let's have some fun. There's a few methods to fix Mac weirdness that are not truly a nuke and pave. And I want to explain why I didn't choose those paths. One method that does have merit is to do what's called an over-the-top install. This method reinstalls macOS, which can be handy if you feel like some system items have gotten borked up. It's probably the least invasive method, and you do it via macOS recovery. It's altogether possible that this method would have cleaned up the paper cuts I described earlier, but I also wanted to upgrade to macOS Big Sur. And again, I don't enjoy chasing down little bugs as much as I do starting from scratch. Another method would be to erase your hard drive, a full nuke, but then do what I would call kind of a repave, or use Migration Assistant to put everything back. To me, that's like moving out of your house, putting in new carpeting, and then putting every single bit of stuff you had before right back where it was. No throwing anything away, no purging of clothes or tools or computer gear, no Marie Kondoing anything at all. That would defeat one of the main benefits of the process, right? You'd still be bringing back apps you don't use anymore and settings files and caches from the apps you did delete and more. Migration Assistant does allow you to pick and choose what you want to migrate so you don't have to bring everything forward. But if you use this method to migrate your data, the checkbox next to the user library cannot be deselected. I took a look at it, and my user library on the 16-inch MacBook Pro was up to 177 gigabytes. 
by the time I did the new compave. This is one of the problems I wanted to solve. Now, deep in your heart of hearts, do you believe that the entire 177 gigabytes of library data is necessary? Or is it just possible that some of the 177 gigabytes of junk can go? A bit later, I'll walk through how I determined why my library had grown so huge. Another partial pave option would be to nuke the drive, move the user data by hand, but use Migration Assistant only to migrate applications. Now, this isn't the dumbest idea if you're fairly stringent on what apps you load on your Mac. I am not at all stringent. In fact, I've probably added uh, a few new apps to my Mac just while I was writing up the process. I suspect that even the most rigorous amongst us have kept some old apps around for some sort of nostalgia, thinking, I will use this app again someday. That's the stuff you'll have on your Mac for the rest of all time if you don't do a nuke and pave. It's so easy to make these apps of ours precious in some way. Now, personally, I've found that the most freeing option is to do a full nuke and pave. I like to compare the above options to trying to clean out a closet by only removing what you don't need. If you've ever tried that, go through your clothes and take out what you don't need. You'll remove maybe 10% of your clothes, and it won't feel like you have any more space than when you started. A nuke and pave of a closet means you take everything out of the closet, and you methodically only put back what you do use. I do this around once a year on my closet, and I probably get rid of more like 30% of my unneeded clothes, and someone else gets the joy of new-to-them clothes. The same thing is true with nuking and paving your Mac. I guess except people don't get your old apps. Anyway, you, you know what my analogy means, right? I hope I've made a compelling case for a true nuke and pave once in a while, so let's walk through the process. First, check your backups. Make sure that bootable backup you made truly does boot your Mac, because you'll probably end up needing to boot back into it from time to time for things you've forgotten. At least I always do. Next, you'll probably want to make a bootable installer of the operating system you hope to install. I say probably, because while I did make one, it ended up being of no use to me. There used to be an app that would do this for you in a nice GUI interface, but it hasn't worked for a few operating systems back. So instead, I followed Apple's instructions to make my bootable installer. It's pretty simple. You just download the installer from the Mac App Store and then run a simple terminal command to make your thumb drive a bootable installer. Nuking a Mac is a tricky thing. First of all, you're terrified, right? But I've accidentally done an over-the-top install because I wasn't paying attention. And you're smarter than me, so I assume you won't waste time doing it wrong like I have in the past. This time I followed Apple's detailed instructions on support.apple.com on how to erase an Intel or M1-based Mac from macOS of recovery. Once you're in recovery, there's an option to erase your disk, and if it's an APFS formatted drive, you'll have to choose to erase the entire volume group, not just the one volume. All right, the scariest part is done. There's no going back now. It's time to boot into that bootable installer. This is where things went wrong for me. I was able to select my installer thumb drive, but it then asked for my Wi-Fi network password. I suspect that's to check with Apple to verify this is a legit device to receive it, not some janky Hackintosh. For some reason, this, this step would simply not accept my Wi-Fi password. I tried it a bunch of times, had my password manager open, could not get it to accept it. I backed out, and while still in macOS recovery, I tried to change the startup disk to the bootable installer thumb drive, and I got a baffling message. It said, quote, the BLESS tool was unable to set the current boot disk. I have no clue what that means or why it wouldn't bless it. 
And you may be hollering into your device that it must be because I have a T2 Mac and I didn't remember to go into startup security utility and allow booting from external media. That's not it though, because I had enabled booting from external media on this Mac. Whenever I'm faced with baffling problems like this, I turn to research assistant Stephen Getz for guidance. He suggested I try using internet recovery, which is a method that pulls the OS down for you from the internet as part of the process. I'd looked into that before I did the nuke, and back then it showed that it was going to give me Catalina. I had no other choice but to follow Stephen's advice, and the great news is that now that I had erased my drive, internet recovery was offering me Big Sur. I pushed the button and I went for a long, stress-relieving walk. When I returned, I had a lovely, fresh, pristine copy of macOS Big Sur 11.2 awaiting me. I should mention that later that very same day, I was prompted that my OS was out of date and did I want to install 11.2.1. I think I just got unlucky. That was the uh, very quick little patch they did that, that patched that scary bug in sudo. So I guess I'll allow it. Now that I have my nice empty closet, it's time to start reassembling my system. If you've followed me for a while, you know that I'm a huge fan of using mind maps to organize information, and I favor the app iThoughts from Toketaware to make my mind maps. I started maintaining a mind map in iThoughts many years ago to manage my nuke and pave process, and creating that in the first place was one of the smartest things I've ever done. The mind map gives me a structure to follow to make sure I only install the stuff I need and in the order of importance of those installations. First, I categorize the apps into mission critical, high priority, and low priority. I need the high priority apps, but I basically can't do anything on my Mac without my mission critical apps. For example, I can't even start to install apps until I have one password installed. Many of my Macs and my apps now sync their data through Dropbox, so Dropbox itself is in the mission critical pile. Also, mission critical is anything I use to create the podcast, such as MarsEdit, Hindenburg, everything Rogue Amoeba makes, Discord, and Memo Live. I can't do programming by stealth without my Git clients, so SourceTree and Git Kraken make the list too. If I actually want to deliver you the podcast, then Feeder has to make that top tier. As I go through my mind map installing apps based on their priority, I change the color of the little bubbles to green so I can see my progress. That's fun visually, but after a while it gets pretty cluttered, so I move the completed apps into a completed bubble within the mission-critical topic. Now my reward isn't the color change. With the completed bubbles collapsed, my mind map actually starts to shrink, and I can concentrate on the apps I still have left. An enhancement I added the last time I did this was to create a bubble called Max, Mac App Store apps so that I could just go through those really quickly. So it's nice to have those categorized separately. Now the right side of the map is where I put the apps I want to install. On the left-hand side of the map, I document every single little thing I have to do to configure those apps. As I explain this part of the process, you'll realize the value of that migration assistant I was complaining about. Configuring every tool is definitely the time-consuming part of this process. Perhaps for normal people, it wouldn't be that big of a task, but if you're into automation at all on your Mac, you've probably added many more configurations than you would think. Here's a few simple examples. Most images in my blog posts are floated to the right or left, and they have a nice explanatory caption centered under that image in italics text. I could write out the HTML to do that every single time, but instead I configured the media markup template built into MarsEdit to do it for me with a little pull-down. It's not hard to reproduce, and I keep the configuration in my mind map so I can copy and paste it back into my fresh install. 
Now, ideally, Mars Edit would have a way to export these settings and import that back in, but I've been working with a developer, and even his command line method he gave me didn't work this year for some reason. He's still taking a look at it. I do have to say that this year, a lot of my apps sync their settings beautifully through iCloud or Dropbox. I was delighted especially that Steve Harris, developer of Feeder, spent the time and energy recently to add iCloud syncing for the servers, and that allows me to post the feed. It was glorious to open it on the new installation and realize that I had very little configuration to do. I simply had to look for my RSA secure keys, and I was ready to go. The mind map I've made is a fantastic resource, and it's also a living document. Each time I do a nuke and pave, many things will have changed. This year, I created a category for app installs called maybe don't install. I created it because I found nine apps that I don't use often or maybe don't need at all anymore, but I consider it highly important the last time I did this. If they're still uninstalled by the next time I do this, I'll probably just delete them from the app list altogether. Now, remember I said to make that bootable backup disk, make sure it was really bootable before you start? The reason that's so important other than to save you in case of an internal drive failure, is that invariably you're going to forget a setting that can only be retrieved by booting back into the old install. This year, an enhancement to the process was that I created a Dropbox folder entitled Nuke and Pave, and I put all of the settings files I exported from my apps in there. I used to just kind of do it haphazardly, one at a time, but now having them all collected together I thought was a good idea. One of the things I didn't use to keep track of are the hidden files I use more and more these days, like those RSA secure keys I talked about earlier. Having these keys stored allowed me to log into my servers for all the file transfers I do for the content of the shows without having to constantly enter my credentials. I was smart enough to zip the RSA keys up with a password when I put them in Dropbox. Another major enhancement to my Nuke and Pave document was to create a bubble at the top with the title Before Nuke and Pave. I made that bubble red, and because I thought supports markdown, I was able to make it a heading one, which means the text is huge. That's where I put all of the stuff I forgot to export before the nuking step this year and had to go back and get by booting to the backup drive. I'm hoping that each time I go through this process, I'll get a little bit smarter. When you embark on this journey yourself and you create a mind map or an outline or even a plain text document on your process, please heed one important piece of advice. Leave Easter eggs for yourself. I found one of the high priority, priority tasks, high priority tasks said, get printing working. I noticed it had a sub bubble and when I expanded it, it simply said, <laughs> anyway, I got a big kick out of that and I made myself laugh. Several of the settings have morphed over time as well. So I keep the document up to date as I go, adjusting the text information and also adding screenshots of setting pages for clarity. Oddly, the very last two applications I install on a newly nuked Mac are actually the list of mission are on the list of mission critical apps. The two apps that I do last are my backup applications, Carbon Copy Cloner and Backblaze. You see, if I start running those before I'm 100% sure I'm done with paving, I might miss something and lose it forever. Scary to run without a new backup for a week or two, but the risk of losing data seems lower with this path. Speaking of data, when and how does my data come back? One of the great joys of the cloud life we leave these days is that a lot of my data came streaming down automatically. I synced my documents and desktop to iCloud, so everything was at my fingertips immediately. Now, iCloud may take a bit to download, but I can access anything by just selecting it, and it'll download right when I touch it. 
Dropbox holds a lot of other data that I need, which is why it took a top spot on installations. Now, photos are one of the most precious categories of data I have, but I've learned over the years that the slowest way to migrate the original full-resolution versions of my 83,171 photos is to import them from the backup. If I do it that way, iCloud Photo Library has to check every single photo with its database one at a time to see if the full-res version is actually downloaded. This process takes more than three weeks. And yes, I verified with Apple that this is in line with their predictions. A senior advisor once explained to me that a faster method is to turn on iCloud Photo Library with optimized images instead, wait the short time for the small versions to download, and only then turn on Download Originals. You see, now iCloud Photo Library simply turns on the fire hose and shoves them all down as fast as it can because it knows it doesn't have to check to see if you already have them. If I keep my machine on 24-7 and photos open, it takes about three days instead of three weeks. In addition, during those three days, I have access to all of my photos and I can, on demand, open the originals. In the three-week method, no new photos download until it's finished that I take with my iPhone, so my photos library is pretty much useless during those three weeks. After the cloud downloads have done their work, I connect my backup drive and I simply drag over anything that's not in the cloud services. It's actually a surprisingly short list. In my pictures folder, I have a lot of data that's not in my photos library. I have a small smidge of music on, in my music library that I want to preserve outside of Apple Music, and my videos folder has a lot of files I do care about. In Programming by Stealth, when we're working on our web apps, we run an app called MAMP that allows us to run a web server on our Macs. I bring this up because the very annoying thing about MAMP is that you have to keep all of your program files inside the MAMP folder that's inside applications. How dumb is that? Some of my most critical data is inside my applications folder. If anybody knows a way around this, I would really like to know because it drives me crazy that there's this one thing that I'm afraid I'm going to forget. Now, let's see, what have I forgotten? Ah, remember that 174 gigabyte library folder? We probably should go check and make sure there's not something in there I need. I figured I'd better take a walk through that to see if my, any of my apps were maybe keeping their data in the library and I'd be very sorry and sad to lose it. That had happened before, especially with database programs, and the ones I don't access super often had it, so I didn't think to test right away when I got a new, a new install and I almost lost that database data. Now, luckily, both of the database programs I use now keep their stuff in Dropbox, so I wasn't worried about those, but I didn't know what that 174 gigabyte was. Now, it's not a bad idea to peruse some of these folders, such as application support, but I only found things I was certain I didn't need. Like, what the heck is Propellerhead software? I have no memory of that application, and yet a migration assistant process would have brought that along to my fresh install of Big Sur. Once I'd poked around in application support and not found anything I needed, I thought it might be a good idea to figure out why that library was so huge. Large files could potentially be of interest. My tool of choice to look for large files is the free OmniDisk Sweeper from OmniGroup. Like OmniDisk Sweeper, or I like OmniDisk Sweeper because I can point to a specific folder and just drill into that one and see how, where the big files are. With most of the disk space utilities out there, you have to start at the top level. And with that 800 gigabyte plus photos library, that dominates the graphics and makes it really hard to find the next biggest files. I took a look at my library folder using OmniDisk Sweeper and I found that the biggest folder was called Screen Recordings. 
And inside that was an 82 gigabyte screen recording video. It was a very weird video that was several minutes long, and yet I can see by the clock in the menu bar that time never advances during that, uh, that recording. Had I migrated my user account, and thus my user library, I would have carried that giant file with me into the future and been none the wiser. Okay, I could have been wiser if I scanned my library with OmniDisk Reaper on a schedule, but <laughs> you know that's not going to happen. Next up on the hit parade of giant folders in my library was 22 gigabytes of attachments from messages. I know it's possible there's an adorable photo or video of one of my adorable grandchildren in there, but I try to import the good ones into photos as I go along, so I'm pretty sure I don't need any of them. I'm blindly going to let them all go. Now, things got weirder in the third largest folder that was 12 gigabytes. It was in group containers and had a bunch of files with, you know, goop characters at the name of, in the name, but they ended in .telegram. I'm an avid Telegram user, and in theory, Telegram is supposed to keep attachments in the cloud, not locally. There are circumstances under which a file does get down to, downloaded locally, but there were 63,932 partial meta files in there, and I, I'm 100% certain I know I do not need those. Again, this would have been 12 gigabytes of lost space in my drive if I'd used even the most minimal version of Migration Assistant. Also inside the group containers was sync data from apps like 1Password, Apple Podcasts, Keep It, and Mail. I know that all of these apps will recreate this data when installed, so I can ignore those files as well. The application support folder in user library is an interesting place, but again, I didn't need any of it. My clipboard history was four and a half gigabytes, and I think that's because I left a really high limit on my clipboard manager, CopyM. I can adjust that from within CopyM, and I probably should, but since it syncs its data through iCloud, I know I don't have to drag this data over. The lesson here is if that if you're willing to go through and scan your library to be certain you're not leaving something behind, you can probably save an enormous amount of disk space if you avoid using Migration Assistant. Now, if you have one computer and you're doing the new compave dance, you'll probably have to do a fair amount of rebooting back and forth between the old and new to get this done. I did it using three computers and an iPad. I had my 2016 MacBook Pro booted to my backup drive, the 2019 getting all the nuking and paving, it eventually hooked to the big display, and then I had my M1 Mac Mini with my handy 12-inch USB-C display being used to look things up and verify configurations. After a while, I did start to descend into madness, though, grabbing the wrong keyboard or trackpad or mouse as I was flipping back and forth between all these devices. It was a great exercise of the mind and muscle memory, but I had to step away from the keyboards once in a while to refocus and stay sane. Now, one of the last steps is to preserve my bootable backup somewhere so I can wipe the SSD and start using it as a new backup. I have about four terabytes of space left on my Synology network attached storage, and I knew I could put it in there because I did it back in 2019, but I couldn't remember how I did it. My poor memory is one of the reasons I document things so much. All I could remember was that it was a sparse bundle. I asked Stephen Getz, how did I do that? He reminded me that Carbon Copy Cloner, and also Super Duper, can create sparse bundles, and he thought it could save that sparse bundle to the Synology. Well, that shook a brain cell loose, and I remembered that when I taught the tutorial on Carbon Copy Cloner for Screencast Online, I explained that you can set the destination of a backup clone to go to any network-attached drive. I started the process, and I let it go. Took a while at about 750 megabits per second, but I now have a copy of my backup, so I feel much better. 
If I ever need to, to use it to boot from, though, I would need to clone it back to an attached drive, but at least it's safe and sound. Chasing down weird bugs is not repeatable, and it isn't any fun, so you probably just live with those bugs gnawing away at you. I'm sure as I've described the new pave process, it sounds more daunting than you had hoped, but this process is repeatable and predictable, and it also doesn't take nearly as long as you think if you prepare well before you dive in. I started my nuke and pave at 1.47 p.m. on Wednesday, and by Thursday night, Steve and I were able to run a successful test of the live show, and I was able to record. I've been, able to, I've been cleaning up bits and pieces since then, and, you know, I find little stragglers to fix, but for the most part, everything I really need is functional. And guess what? I can use my Apple Watch to unlock my Mac now. I can authenticate in 1Password with my Apple Watch. I can install apps authenticating with my Apple Watch. I can unlock system preferences with my Apple Watch. Search works in email. And I can even use my phone as a scanner again. And guess what else? My Mac is as fast as the day I got it. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to become a patron like Alan did? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. You want to do a one-time donation instead of a continuing donation? That's at podfeed.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in the conversation over on Slack, you can get there by going to podfeed.com slash Slack. And you can join our Facebook community at podfeed.com slash Facebook if you're of that persuasion. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show and see the sausage get made like it did tonight, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.